G'day again, everyone. I hope uh, you remember last year, we, uh, we got halfway through the book of Acts. In fact, we got halfway through two books last year, Acts and Romans. And uh, so we're going to deal with the second half of those two books in the first half of this year. And we're starting in the book of Acts. And I hope you remember from when we looked at the first half, how the book of Acts is for the Christian, our family history. Uh, in many ways, this is our sort of our ancestry.com search results. We are the end result of what starts in the book of Acts. Uh, historically speaking, the, the growth of Christianity, the spread of the Christian church, is actually one of the most amazing facts of history. In, in, in all of history, there has been nothing like the spread of Christianity. One man uh, from a relatively backwater, relative backwater of the world, uh, sent out 11 largely uneducated men, and yet within 100 years of his death, they had reshaped the world, uh, and uh, he had shaped history. And what makes it incredible is things like that have happened. There have been movements, but this didn't spread via military conquest, didn't spread via a government program. In fact, there is no reason, humanly speaking, why Christianity survived, let alone spread and, and, and took over the world, because it was actually opposed, it was, it was persecuted from the very beginning. So how did it happen? Uh, I was reading a non-Christian historian, I think he was a non-Christian at the time, I think he's actually become a Christian from other things I've read later on, but he was talking about the spread of Christianity and, and he said this, he, he goes on about how it, it wasn't primarily because of political machinations, it wasn't because of great strategies, it wasn't because of an advertising campaign, he said instead the primary means of its growth was through the united and motivated efforts of the Christian believers who invited their friends, relatives and neighbours to share the good news. Now in his book, he writes that with a tone of amazement. He's like, that's not how it's meant to work. Things aren't meant to change the world by one person telling another person about the good news they've come to know. Uh, but we know that is how God has chosen to save the world. That is how God has chosen to work. God takes ordinary human beings and he spreads the message of salvation, a bit like we heard from, from Neil before with Avril. He spreads the message of salvation as we just share the good news we have come to know. Uh, and the book of Acts is the start of that story. So I've been very excited about getting back into Acts this term. I hope you get excited because really, I think the purpose of Acts is to fire you up. That's the technical description of the purpose of Acts. The purpose of Acts, that's what it's here for. It's actually just meant to sort of excite you to see what God has done and what God will continue to do through the preaching of the gospel. But of course, we're picking up the story halfway through. So I've got to do that thing they do on, you know, the TV last week on Survivor. So you remember who got voted out last week and you're ready for this week or previously on whatever show you watch on Netflix. Well, this is previously in the book of Acts. And so the key thing to remember about the book of Acts, the thing that drives it, the event that starts the book, is that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's where the book starts. That is the event that changed history. In fact, it's the hinge of all of history, really. And right at the start of Acts, the risen Jesus appears to his disciples and he gives them a mission and it's the key verse of, of the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So just put yourself 
in these 11 men's shoes, there are only 11 at this point because Judas was gone and they hadn't picked the replacement Matthias yet. Jesus says, I am giving you a job. Be my witnesses. Everything you have seen me do, everything you've heard me say, go and tell other people. And go and invite people to come and trust in me and be saved. And I want you to start at home. I want you to start here in Jerusalem. Then I want you to go in that sort of little ring around Samaria and, and Judea, your home country. Then after that, I don't know, how about taking it to the ends of the earth? Just think about it. Just think, if you're one of those 11 men, mainly fishermen from Galilee, this is an impossible task. But, Jesus says, you won't be going alone. You will have the help of the Holy Spirit. And he will go with you. And so as you tell people about me, he, the Holy Spirit, will work. As you preach the word, the Holy Spirit will be at work in people and they will believe. And so we saw the start of all that. We looked at chapters 1 to 12 last year. They started preaching in Jerusalem. What happened? They start preaching. Thousands of people became Christians. Just imagine being there in those early days. Those early times of the book of Acts are incredible. They, they preach and thousands of people say, what must we do to be saved? And they say, repent and believe in Jesus. Incredible. The church just grew and grew and grew. It looked like nothing could stop it. But it was still just in Jerusalem. It was still just Jews who were hearing about Jesus. It hadn't gone out. Then something happened. Something forced them to go out. Remember what it was? What was it that forced the Christians to go out? It wasn't that someone came up with a great strategy. It was that people started killing them. That's what forced them to go out. Stephen was stoned to death, the first Christian martyr, absolute hero of the faith. James, the first of the apostles, had a sword run through him. He the first of the apostles to die. And so they fled. I think, I can't remember who the preacher was on, on one of these passages last year, but they said it was like someone tried to put out the fire by hitting it with a stick and all the embers just exploded out. Well, that's what happened. The Christians just flew out all over the place, Philip and others. And wherever they went, what did they do? They just kept talking. They just kept telling people about Jesus. Wherever they went, people were saved. And so in those first 12 chapters what you see is Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that's the key verse to keep going back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 it started to be fulfilled the gospel had gone to Jerusalem the gospel had gone to Samaria to all of Judea and wherever it went people were believing people were being saved but there was still the very small matter of the ends of the earth at this point, as wonderful as the opening chapters of Acts are, and it talks about thousands of people being saved, this was still on a world scale, a tiny little Jewish group in a tiny little backwater of the world. But then two things happened. Two things that actually totally shaped the history of the world. Two things happened. Remember what the two things were? First is a guy called Cornelius became a Christian and he wasn't a Jew. And so God showed Peter people didn't have to become Jews to become Christians. God showed Peter Cornelius doesn't have to get circumcised. And in particular, he does not have to stop eating pork and oysters and prawns and whatever else he likes eating. So God used this man to show Peter and then the early church, actually, this is for all people. And people don't have to come and become Jews. They just need to do what? Repent and believe in Jesus. And they are Christians too. And I, for one, am very thankful for that. Not least because I like pork chops, but also 
because that is the gospel for most of us, isn't it? Because most of us are not from a Jewish background. But then something even bigger happened. Saul, or Paul as we came to know him, got converted. This was the man who had been leading the persecution of the Christians. He was there. He said, give me your coat to the people so they could throw rocks and kill Stephen. He was an awful person. But on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him and he becomes a Christian. More than that, God says, I am going, the irony of it, the Jew of Jews, the man who said, I am the Jew par excellence, God says, I'm going to give you the job of leading the charge of taking the gospel to the whole world, to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. So that's where we're at, at the end of Acts chapter 12. And it's like things are ready to sort of go off. Uh, In the first half of the book, the gospel's gone to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and Peter was sort of the star of the story. Now Peter fades away, and it becomes the story of Paul as the gospel goes to the world. That's been a very long last week on the book of Acts, but hopefully we're back up to sea. But now what I want you to do is shake yourself off, Shake yourself off, get yourself sort of comfortable, turn your Bibles to chapter 13. And I have to say, I challenge you, if you are a Christian, I challenge you to not get fired up and to not get excited by what God does in the second half of the book of Acts over the next few weeks. So I've called the first part sent by God, and this is verses one to three. So in Acts chapter 13, we we pick up the story in Antioch where a church has grown up. So it's sort of uh, Syria is where it would be today, up where sort of Lebanon is, north of Israel. Uh, And Paul and Barnabas are two of the key leaders in this church. I always like to think, what a church to be a part of. You've got five prophets and teachers, it says, five leaders of the church. You've got a guy who is best mates with King Herod, who's the most connected guy in town. You've got Paul and you've got Barnabas, two of the most famous preachers in history. But anyway, God had a different plan. So it tells us, look at verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. Now immediately we get, sometimes get caught up in the details and we say, well, how did the Holy Spirit say that to them? Did they have a dream? Did they have a, a, a vision? Did they all just feel like this was the right thing for them to do? We're just not told. For whatever happened, they understood God had a job for these two men. Now, it's important we remember this isn't saying that is how God will speak to us. Uh, The rest of the Bible makes it very clear. The main way God speaks to us is by his word, the scriptures, and he gives us wisdom and he gives us brothers and sisters to, to help us. But here at this vital moment, God was saying it is time for Barnabas and Paul to go out to the world. And it's really important to see, look in verse three, even though this is the apostle Paul, even though they're convinced the Holy Spirit had told them, they still pray about it and they still test it. But after they're certain, the church said, this is God's will. So they commissioned them by laying hands on them and sending them on their way. I actually think this is a wonderful little moment that actually shows you the beauty of a healthy church. It's a wonderful little moment because there's nothing sadder than when people leave a church for bad reasons. Something sad that when people leave a church because of ungodliness or because of unresolved sin or, or, or because of a dispute or just for no good reason at all. But here, on the other hand, there's no more magical moment, I think, than sending people out for good reasons. As hard as it is, there is just something wonderful and a sign that a church is healthy when it sends people out to share the gospel. Uh, in a few months, we're going to send Lama to Vietnam. 
to share Jesus with people in Vietnam. How wonderful is that? In fact, at the, we're going to make a big focus of that at the big day out, in the afternoon at the big day out with Lama. And it's like when we laid our hands on the McDowell's, do you remember? And we, we sent them to Paraguay. When we laid our hands on the Blau's and sent them to Argentina. When we laid our hands on the, on the newbies and sent them to the Philippines. Before that, the Turners and sent them to Tanzania. Uh, you see, as hard as it is to let people go, wouldn't we love to have those people in our church? Wouldn't it be wonderful? They're great encouragers. It'd be wonderful to have them here with us. But that's what a healthy church does. It sends people out to preach the gospel. So with the blessing of their church, Paul and Barnabas head off and they sail to Cyprus. So if you look on your map, it's probably not big enough for you, but hopefully you get the gist. They're going from like where Syria and Lebanon is today and they go across to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. No one has been there to preach the gospel before them. They turn up. First Christians in this place. And wherever they went, what Paul and Barnabas did is they start in the Jewish synagogue because the gospel is first for the Jew. But then they move on to share Jesus with any... Miriam's making our map bigger for us, but I think we've got the idea. Don't get distracted by the map. Get back into the Bible. Because then they move on to share Jesus with anyone who will listen. They get to a place called Paphos, and that's where the story focuses in on two people they meet. So they meet a guy called Sergius Paulus, he was like the governor. It says he was an intelligent man who wanted to hear God's message. I love the fact they tell us he was intelligent. I think they're meaning he was smart enough that he knew I should listen to these guys. But just a reminder, really smart people become Christians and really not so smart people become Christians. And really smart people don't follow Jesus and not so smart people sometimes follow Jesus. Intelligence is not the defining decision, you know, thing about someone coming to Christ. But this man is intelligent and I like the fact that they tell us that. So what happens? He wants to hear about Jesus. Straight away, there's opposition because there was a sorcerer there. It says a Jewish false prophet called Bar-Jesus. Of all the names for a false prophet, his name is Bar-Jesus, son of salvation. He doesn't live up to his name because he has another name, which is Elamas or the sorcerer. And he's determined to stop people hearing about Jesus and finding salvation. But Paul could not let that happen. Look at verse 9. It says, then Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at the sorcerer and said, you son of the devil, full of all deceit and all fraud, enemy of all righteousness, won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? It's powerful stuff, isn't it? It's powerful words. And the thing is, he doesn't just verbally condemn him. He does something absolutely sort of out of the ordinary in the New Testament. He does one of the very few miracles of judgment in the New Testament. Uh, usually, think about all Jesus' miracles, think about all the other apostles' miracles. They're positive miracles. It's helping a lame man walk, making a blind man see. Here, he makes a seeing man blind. Why such a strong word here and an act of judgment? Well, it's because this man was stopping someone hearing about Jesus. There is no worse thing a person can do than stop someone hearing about Jesus because that is to stop someone finding salvation it's like locking shut the fire exits in a burning building and that is why Paul calls him a son of the devil it is the devil's work it is Satan's work to stop people hearing about Jesus and trusting in Jesus Satan's primary work is to lead people away from Christ 
Some modern Christians get all fixated on the devil and, and, you know, it's like the devil is behind every rock and anything happens and that's the devil's fault. The devil's business is stopping people finding Christ. And sometimes he does that through crazy out there ways like the occult, like this, this sorcerer in Cyprus. More often he does it through the mundane things of life. What are Satan's biggest weapons today in our culture? I don't think it's a crazy sorcerer coming into church and yelling abuse. Today, it's busyness. It's technology. It's sport. It's money. It's what what our family thinks of us. It's our pride. He used them all to distract us from hearing about Jesus and from trusting in Jesus, from reading his word. That is the devil's work. But sometimes the devil does it through people like Elimas, people who come into the church, try to throw doubt on sound doctrine, try to breed division, try to lead people away from Christ. That is the devil's work. But here, as soon as Paul removes the distraction, what happens? This intelligent man, Sergius, considers the claims of Jesus, he believes, and he is saved. This is actually a wonderful moment. You see, Cornelius was a God-fearer. Cornelius had heard the Old Testament, he'd read the Old Testament, he'd already decided there is one true God and he was trying to work out what it meant to follow him. This is a total outsider. This is, this is, this is you or me when we first became Christians for most of us. I think this is a wonderful moment and it's just the first drop in the ocean of the gospel going to all people. But it also reminds us wherever the gospel is preached, there will be opposition. The gospel is always a word of salvation to those who will listen and believe, but a word of judgment to those who oppose it. But we'll move on, because Acts only gives us a highlights passage of what happen, package of what happens in, in Cyprus. I'm sure lots of other people became Christians because later on Paul was setting up churches there. But now the story moves on. And I've called this last really long part, verses 13 to 52, God's work of salvation. We're only going to deal quickly with this story because I spent far too long at the start bringing us back up to speed. From Cyprus, if we go back to our map, thanks Miriam. Miriam, from Cyprus, they sail across and up to what we would call Turkey. So now they've gone to Turkey and just to confuse us, they go to another town called Antioch. Seems like every second town was Antioch in the ancient world. This is a different one. This is Pisidian Antioch. Okay, now again, exactly the same thing. They go to the synagogue first because the gospel is first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. Then after the Bible readings from what we would call the Old Testament, they say to Paul, do you have a word of encouragement to share? Because Paul was a rabbi and a Jewish rabbi. I think those rabbis in that synagogue regretted that decision for the rest of their lives. It's a bit like when sometimes I do an open mic here at church and certain people get the microphone, you know. And then at staff meeting, Troy says, why did you let them get the microphone? No. See, if only they knew what they were asking. So Paul gets up and he grabs this opportunity. It's a really long speech. It goes from verses 16 to 41. Haven't got time to go through it in detail. I'd love you to reread it yourself. Uh, Two things I want to point out in it, though. The first is, remember I, I got us to read chapter 12, verse 25, where it said, before this, Paul went down to Jerusalem. This speech of Paul's is exactly the same as what Peter says in all his speeches. Because one of the critiques of Paul was he was preaching a different gospel to Peter, but he actually went to Jerusalem to make sure we're all on the same page. So it's the same gospel. More importantly, though, the main point is really simple. 
Paul is saying to these people, you know those books you read on your Sabbath at your synagogue? You know that law you read with all its history of Israel? You know those prophets with all those promises? Well, the one they're all pointing to has come. That was his point. The one who fulfills all those promises, he has come. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about your Messiah. Let me tell you about the Christ. And then he tells them about how even though they killed Jesus when he came, Jesus rose from the dead and now he offers forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who will believe in him. Look at how he finishes it off there in verse 38. It's the key verse of the sermon. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you and everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. What he's done there is he's just captured the gospel in a nutshell. Believe in Jesus and you can be forgiven. Do you remember from our studies in Roman what just, Romans, what justified means? Justified means to be declared right with God, to be declared innocent. And his point is you couldn't be justified. You couldn't be forgiven by keeping the law of Moses. You couldn't do it. But you can be by trusting in Jesus. We are all sinners. We've all sinned. We're not innocent, but God declares us innocent because Jesus has paid for your sin. That is the message Paul preached right from the beginning. That's the message I pray we have heard and believed. And that is the message we want to share with others. And incredibly, just like for us here, many did believe. Lots of people were intrigued and interested. Look at verse 42. It says lots of people were begging them to come back and tell them more. That is a preacher's favourite verse, that people might beg them to come back and tell them more. And so following Sabbath, it says, the following Sabbath, a week later, it says, the whole town showed up to listen. Now at this moment, if you just paused here, we think, isn't this amazing? The missionary journey they're going on is just one success after another. Wherever they go, people are being saved. Then something happened. And it's something that happened wherever they went preaching the gospel. And it's something that happens wherever the gospel is preached. Opposition rose up. Persecution starts. And on this occasion, it was the Jews, obviously the ones who hadn't believed. Uh, they got jealous and they start yelling insults. But Paul and Barnabas aren't surprised. It doesn't make them doubt that they're doing the right thing. Look at what they say at verse 46. It says, then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, it was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first, but since you rejected and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. See what he's saying there? He's saying, you've had your chance. We've given you your chance. It's, it's a horrible line. You consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life. That's what a person does when you hear the gospel and say, no, not for me. You are saying, I am turning my back on God's offer of eternal life. But Paul says that doesn't mean it ends because we'll just tell everyone else. You don't want to hear? We'll just tell everyone else about your Messiah, your Saviour. And so don't blame God. You've made the choice. You've considered yourself unworthy. And so here Paul turns to the Gentiles and for the first time there is a widespread conversion of non-Jews. Look at how he describes it. Look at verse 48. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. I want you to understand just how important this is for us. Unless you are from a Jewish background, this is the most incredible moment in history. It's amazing. 
This is where not just one, not just two, where thousands of Gentiles became Christians. This is where the doors sort of were thrown open and salvation was offered to people from every nation, tribe and tongue. This is an incredible moment. But I just want to focus for a second what he says there in verse 48. Look at verse 48. Because we would expect him to say something like, and all those who were convinced of the truth of the gospel believed. Or all those who, who were intelligent like Sergius Paulus believed. Or so He doesn't. You see what he says? He says, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. What does that mean? Well, this is that wonderful truth of the Bible that we call the doctrine of predestination. On the one hand, we are 100% responsible for our decision to reject Jesus or accept Jesus. As he said to those Jewish people, you have counted yourself unworthy. Some of these people chose to reject the gospel. That was their decision. These Gentiles chose to believe the gospel. That was their decision. They are responsible for that decision. But the Bible says behind all of that, God is at work. Behind even our decisions, God is in control. And before the beginning of time, God has appointed those who would believe. Now, modern minds like ours often complain about this. We say, how does that work? Doesn't that make me a robot if if it's all God's decision? The Bible is very clear in passages like this. We are responsible for our decisions. If we reject Jesus, that's our decision. If we receive Jesus, that's our decision. But overarching it all, God is sovereign. God is in control. He elects those he will save. But, and please understand this correctly because this throws some people, uh, they worry, what if I'm not appointed to eternal, eternal life? What if I'm not one of those people? How do I know? The Bible never encourages that sort of thinking. The Bible just says, if you believe in Jesus and you trust in him as your Lord and Saviour, know that God has chosen you. If you are persevering in your faith, you are one of God's chosen people. The sign of God's choice is that you trust in Jesus. And you notice how Paul and Barnabas didn't wander around the crowds trying to work out who they should share the gospel, who was appointed. They can go around saying, oh, that guy's got a special tattoo or a special birthmark, or she really looks like she'd make a good Christian. I'll share Jesus. That wasn't how it worked. They preached the gospel to everyone. They told everyone about Jesus. And as people responded, they then thanked God that God had worked through their efforts to save his people. And that's what I want us to take away from the start of this series in the second half of Acts. God has given us, he has given us as his people a mission. That is what Paul understood. That is what Barnabas understood. That's what that church in Antioch understood when they sent them out. God has given us a mission to share Jesus and his offer of forgiveness with everyone, whether they are a Jew or a Gentile, whether they are male or female, whether they are whatever else divides humanity, everyone. It's not our job to discriminate. It's not our job to decide who is worthy of the gospel. It is our job to tell everyone about Jesus. And then God will use that faithful sharing of the gospel to save a people for his very own. My prayer, in the light of this first part of this section of Acts, as we get into it, my prayer is that God might use my feeble words and he might use your faithful witness in exactly the same way he worked in Acts 13. Let's pray that he would do that. Our Heavenly Father, 
we thank you that the gospel is for all people. And we thank you that you have worked in us through the faithful preaching of others, through the faithful sharing of the gospel, to see us come to know Jesus. And so we pray that you might use us and our witness to see other people come and find the forgiveness and hope that we have found in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.